Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity we have uh, to serve in your kingdom and to uh, proclaim the message that you've given us to share. And that is the wonderful news that you have come to save us from our sins and bring us into an eternal kingdom that is full of life and an opportunity where we'll get to be with you forever and get to see your face. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would just be with each of the boxes that are being packed um, this morning with the, with the kids in the back that are, that are doing that. I just pray that you'd help them to see the importance of what they're doing in that opportunity of just spreading the good news, spreading the gospel, and uh, sharing about the coming kingdom. And Father, I pray that you would use each box to minister to, uh, the, to the lives that they're going to or the homes that they're going to, that uh, you would be glorified and that they would understand who you are even just a little bit better. Father, I just uh, pray for those who are not with us this morning. I just ask that you just provide comfort and care uh, to them today. Um, Whether they're watching or not online, I just pray that you would just um, help them to feel our love this morning, help them to feel your love this morning um, as we uh, come uh, come to your word this morning to learn more about who you are and what you've called us to do. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just fill me this morning, help this Help me to present your word clearly and the word that you want to be presented. And I pray that you would minister to the hearts who are here this morning, that they would respond and, uh, and hear what they are supposed to hear for their lives. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to be continuing um, in the, uh, the Gospel of Luke. That's uh, where we picked this back up last week. We had started uh, a few months ago, I think. Um, diving into this book, and we're going to continue that um, today in the Gospel of Luke, and we're actually going to be in Luke chapter 10. So while I'm going through a brief introduction here, I want to encourage you, open up your Bibles and uh, turn to Luke chapter 10. Uh, I think it's really important for you to see the, the words that are being, that were, that were, that were uh, that, well, that I'll be reading, um, but it's just, it's important for us to look at the Word of God and to, uh, to understand it in that way, to be able to see it. Uh, he provided it for us in a way in which we can understand, in a way in which we can read. And so I just encourage you to turn there with me this morning so that you can see his words. Not my words, right? They're his words. And so we're going to we'll see that opportunity this morning. And in fact, um, these are words that Luke recorded that are the Lord Jesus speaking. These are the words from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to get to see that um, this morning. Of course, we know the, the whole Bible is uh, Jesus uh, speaking through his, um, his servants, but we'll get to see an interesting uh, thing this morning. Um, and so the, uh, what I've titled this message this morning is, uh, The Kingdom of God is Near. The Kingdom of God is Near. And as I was uh, kind of preparing what, what to talk about this morning after uh, looking at the passage that was set before me uh, as we're just continuing on in Luke. We, well, the way we're doing this, uh, going through the book of Luke, is looking at every single chapter. We're not skipping anything. We're going straight through the book. And um, some of the areas that we talk on are going to be a little bit harder than others. Uh, some are a little bit more straightforward. But it is our responsibility to stop and look at every single word that the Lord gives us. That's what, we're, uh, that's what we're intended to do here. And so we're, gonna, we're not going to do anything different this morning. Um, but as I was uh, thinking about what to, what to talk about, I, I could not help myself but go back to being reminded that this is about the coming kingdom. What we're going to talk about today is about the kingdom of, that's coming. And I'm, I'm not talking about some 
uh, ethereal kingdom that's like some imaginary place that, that, we, that we talk about. I'm talking about a real, physical kingdom that's coming, okay? And I, as I read through the Bible, I can't help but see in almost every single passage, and maybe this is just me, but my hope in, in presenting this to you and sharing this with you is that, so you can see it as well, is that in almost every single passage, we see evidence of a coming kingdom that is going to come here to this earth and is going to reign. And we know who is going to reign. Who is it that's going to reign as king of that kingdom? Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to reign as our king. We just sang about it this morning. Did you guys not hear it in the words that we're singing? We're singing about Jesus as our king. But what do people do that are in a kingdom? What are they supposed to do with that king? They are supposed to follow that king and come under his submission and under his authority, come under him to submit to him and come under his authority. A king, a good king, is to rule over the people and to provide and to protect them, right? He's supposed to provide for them and to protect them. And by ways of protecting is he sets up boundaries and rules and regulations to be able to make sure that those who break those rules are punished and those who do not break those rules are blessed. And we look at a kingdom today because we live in a democracy or a republic. We, we, we look at a kingdom today and we go, ooh, that, I don't really like that idea. I don't like the idea of being under the, the rule of, of one person because guess what? People are sinners, Right? If, if, if one person is given too much power today, they will take it to the nth degree and exploit it, right? That's what we see. We've seen that all throughout history. We can even see it today in some of the dictators that exist today. But let me tell you, Jesus is a good king, right? We know the Bible teaches that Jesus is a good king, and he only cares about what we need and providing for what we need. And so it's our responsibility as we come to know him, right, we fall under his authority, and under his lordship. He is our king. And so I can't help but see the kingdom uh, in this passage this morning. And so you're going to see that come out every once in a while as we're talking about it. And I want you to see the importance of the coming, the, the knowledge that we have of a coming kingdom that is going to be here. Okay. So one of the main points that I want you to, to get out of the message today as we go through Luke chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 1 through 24. Um, from today's passage, you're actually going to get to see, it's kind of amazing how God works. Julie was just talking about it up here earlier, how he pulls us all together. From today's passage, we get a good perspective of what our mindset should be when it comes to evangelism, right? The shoeboxes are just a small example of ways that we can evangelize. But we're going to talk about today specifically uh, some mindsets or some attitudes that we should have when it comes to evangelism. And ultimately, it's that mindset of knowing that the kingdom is coming, of knowing that the kingdom is coming. So today's passage, as you're going to see, we get a good perspective of what our mindset should be when it comes to evangelism. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 10, and, uh, beginning in verse 1, and I'm just going to read verses uh, 1 through 11 for you, and we're going to see that the Lord Jesus commissions some missionaries. There are missionaries that are commissioned. Let me read starting in verse 1 of chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And that's the word of our Lord Jesus. Okay, so here in the very beginning, in verse 1, we see some very interesting things. And honestly, I don't have enough time this morning to go through everything that's packed into this passage. I know it's kind of a simple passage, but there is so much that we can pull out of here. So I'm going to focus on a few key pieces that I think is important for us to take home today. And so this is the first verse that I read there in Luke chapter 10. And I just want to point out a few things for you. So we see that uh, the, the Luke records, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two. And so we have to start by asking, okay, who are these 72? Who are these people? In some manuscripts, and, uh, not manuscripts, in some translations, we see the word 70 used. But the question is, is who are these 72? These are people in addition to, to the 12 disciples that Jesus has set apart and called, us, called to him as we saw earlier in the book of Luke and, and earlier in the Gospels. At this point in time, this is after he's commissioned the 12. He's commissioning 70 more or 72 more um, uh, people. And in fact, so what we do is we look at this, we go, okay, well, what, who, who are those people like? What are, the, what are they? Who are they and what are they like? Well, there's a word, there's a couple of words in, in the verse 1 here that says, after this. Okay, well, what is this after? What did Greg preach on last week? Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, just the chapter beforehand. In that chapter, we see how people are supposed to follow Jesus, what it takes to follow the Lord Jesus. And so I would say that these people that that Jesus appointed, these 72 others, met that criteria. They met the criteria that Jesus laid out in Luke 9, 57 through 62 for what uh, the... the how they were supposed to follow him and what they were charged to do to follow him. So if you recall, these were the points of Greg's message last week. In, verses, in chapter 9, verses 57 through 58, we learned that the people lived like their home was not here in this world, right? They lived as though they belonged somewhere else. They don't belong here. We don't belong here, right? We look at this world. Do you really want to be here? I mean, I, I, yes, we need to be here. We need to be here. We're, it's, we're, we're called to be here. But we look at it and we go, man, this could be better. This could be so much better. And we know it can be. They lived as if their home was not in this, uh, and not here in this world. And then uh, verses 59 through 60 in chapter 9, they made God's priorities their priorities. That was point number two of last week's last, uh, sermon. And then finally in chapter 9, verses 61 through 62, we see that they, these people would not look back to what they left behind. 
in order to follow Jesus. Their eyes were totally fixed on him and pursuing his kingdom, his glory. They weren't worried about what they left behind. And so I think that we can carry those principles over to today to know these are the type of people that Jesus appointed, these 72. Okay, and then we see um, those uh, Jesus uh, appointed these 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. If a king in that day, in ancient times, was entering into a town or a king was going to come from his kingdom to another town and enter into that town, it was commonplace for that kingdom to send forward messengers or people who would announce the coming of the king. They would go into that town with loud trumpets, singing songs and praises of the king that was coming to visit the town, and they were making the announcement and the proclamation that the king was coming. This, kingdom, this king from our kingdom is coming to visit you, okay? And so that's the picture that we get here, is we get these 72 that are appointed. They're going town to town in all of the places where he himself was about to go. That's there at the end of verse 1 there. And so this is the picture that we get, is messengers from the kingdom going forward into these towns to proclaim that the king is coming. And we're going to see that later on. They use language like the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's what we get from this picture, is that these messengers are proclaiming that the king is coming. The king is here, and he's coming to your town. Another thing we notice in this verse is that they went two by two. And you think, oh, man, that's kind of like what they did when they walked onto the ark, right? No, no, this is a little bit different, right? Two by two. He sent them two by two. This kind of calls back from the law in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 19, where when you were to make a charge against someone or to make a claim against someone in a court, you needed to have two or three witnesses to present that claim. And so by sending two people who proclaimed the same message, who had the same thing to say, this was confirming that what they said was true. Or at least it was a lot more credible than just one fella coming in and saying something that, you know, who knows what he's saying, but coming into the town and saying something. In this case, there were two. And so the witnesses stating the same thing was more credible than one person. And the Jews would have known that in, in, in the way that they were coming into the town. Okay, so that's just verse 1. Are you ready for the next 24? <laughs> so we have verse 2. Okay, this is the last verse I'm going to key in on. We're going to talk a little bit more about other things later. But Luke chapter 2, I, or Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 10, verse 2. I think this is interesting. This is what he told these messengers. This is the way he's commissioning them. He's charging them, preparing them. This is what he says. He says, uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, what is Jesus talking about here when he says the harvest? When the harvest is plentiful. I want to go forward to Revelation chapter 14. So turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. It's really easy to remember. 14, 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. This is the picture of the harvest that Jesus is talking about. The picture of the harvest. Starting in verse 14 of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. 
and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. A sickle in the day of an agrarian culture was used to harvest the wheat, right? There's a sharp instrument that was used to harvest the wheat. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And it goes on, verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle from the earth, or across the earth, and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for, six, for 1,600 stadia. I think many times when we think of the harvest, we only think of uh, the Lord Jesus coming and bringing back to those, bringing to him those who have, who have uh, come to know him, right? That's what we think of when we think of the great harvest. We also remember there's terminology that Jesus used when he's talking about this, where there's going to be a separation of the tares from the wheat, where those who are uh, kind of mingled into the wheat to kind of uh, choke it out or, or keep it from growing are going to be removed from them and then thrown into the fire to be burned, right? That, those are the images that we get when it comes to the harvest. But many times we forget that in, in addition to those of us who have come to know Jesus, who are going to be reaped and brought into this kingdom, the rest of the world will also be reaped and thrown into the wine press. Did you catch that imagery there at the end of chapter 14? So there's a great harvest that's coming, and it's plentiful. But it's interesting that the words that he uses here is to pray earnestly. He tells the messengers to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Who is the Lord of the harvest? It's kind of a trick question um, because it's, it's, uh, I think it's pretty clear. But in chapter 14, we see the specifically... Uh, we see the language used, the same language that Isaiah uses, one like a son of man. We see this language also used in Daniel, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head. This is Jesus. Jesus is the one who is going to reap the harvest. It's Jesus. And so he's saying to the messengers, pray to me. How cool is that? Pray to me that I, that, that I would send messengers out to labor in the fields, before I come to reap the harvest, pray to me that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. I think that is just incredible. So, I think that something we can take from this, we can take from this, is that we should always be praying that the Lord would prepare more disciples, more teachers, and evangelists to work in the fields of the earth. We should always be praying for that. Okay, let's move on to verse 3 and the rest of this passage. So in, uh, in let's see, I'm going to go back a couple of slides here just to get us back there. Okay, so verse 3, we're still on 
the instruction that Jesus gives to the missionaries and how he's commissioning them to go forward. He says in verse 3, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. In other words, what you're going to be doing is going to be completely against what the world wants you to do. You will be met with adversity every step of the way. A wolf loves to eat a lamb, does it not? Right? When it's hungry, it's ready to go. Jesus is given this, this picture of, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And you're going to see later on some of, the, some of the things that these messengers were taught to proclaim, the wolves would get really upset. It'd get really nasty. So we're going to talk about that here in a second. But this is just Jesus preparing them. I am sending you out. You're going to be met with adversity. So just be prepared for it. The other thing he says is in verse 4, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. In other words, don't take anything more than what you need. I'm going to provide for you. The Lord will provide for you what you need. This, the, the imagery here that we get is like, especially with the sandals, is like carrying an extra pair of sandals with you with the, with the sandals that you already got on. He's not going to send them out barefoot. So he's saying, don't take anything extra that, 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 you, would, that you think you need because when you go to a house, which is what we see in, in, chapter, in verse 5, is I'm going to provide for you. The labor is worth his wages. I'm going to provide for you. So don't focus on the things that you think you need. Just focus on me. Okay? And then he says um, something that really kind of catches us by surprise. At least it caught me by surprise. He says, and greet no one on the road. Greet no one on the road. The idea here is that you've got a sense of urgency. We've got to move. You're on the way to the city that I've sent you to. Go. Don't stop this greeting you. This is a Jewish cultural tradition where you would stop and you would, there would be a massive um, just a relationship building that would happen, and you would, uh, you would eat at their house, and all these things would be a wonderful tradition of just getting to know this person. Well, Jesus is saying, don't do that for this particular point that I have called you to do. You will go. You go to the city that I have sent you to. This will only cause a delay with the mission that you're on. Stopping and greeting someone will only delay you. Because the king's coming. Okay, verses 5 through 6, uh, we see what are they supposed to do when they arrive to the city? Or what are they supposed to do when they arrive to a house? And in, fa- in, church, uh, in, in, in verse 5, we see Jesus says, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. This is more than just a simple shalom. This is... What they're instructed to do is to present the peace of the gospel, the message. And if if a son of peace is there, that term son of peace is really reflecting of this person welcoming you in having a heart of peace, a heart that is prepared for the gospel, that the Holy Spirit may be working in, this person will welcome you in. And so you're to be looking for a son of peace, someone who is ready to receive the gospel that doesn't already know it, it is ready to receive the gospel. And so if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. That message of the coming kingdom, the message of the king that's coming, the good news of the gospel, that will rest upon him. But if not, if there is not a son of peace there, then that peace that you've, that, that message that you've given will return to you. In other words, that if that person rejects what you've said, it just comes right back. It's just not going to stay there. And you've got to move on. 
But if, but if, there, is a, uh, if there is a son of peace, it says in verse 7, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. What is, what is Jesus really getting at here? I think part of what he's getting at is uh, you don't want to make the impression that what you're looking for um, is for hospitality or for money. You don't want to be making the perception that you're here to be taken care of. Okay, that's going to happen. Your goal here is to proclaim the good news and to share that news with that house. And as soon as you find a house that is ready for you and has, the, has a son of peace there, you are to stay. You are not to go about and try to see if you can find some better food that you might like that might sit better with your gut. You're not to find a better bed to uh, go around this city and try to find a better bed to sleep on. You stay in that house because that is where the son of peace is. It has been prepared by God beforehand, okay? I think it's also interesting that they say to not go from house to house um, because I think there's some element of you are there to create a disciple, to minister to someone who will then take that message and further take it upon into that city, into that town. I think there's some element of that going on um, in this. And so you're to stay here, stay in that house, and minister to them. Because, again, you don't want to make this impression that you're looking for money or you're looking for good things. You're looking for a better hospitality. The mission is not about you. That's what Jesus is saying. This mission is not about you. It's not about your well-being. It is about the coming kingdom, the king who is coming. And so the message, think about the, the recipients of the message. If you've got someone, I mean, look, you can look at uh, certain televangelists today and you can kind of get a uh, kind of a, a feeling that's like, mm, this guy's really in it for himself more than he is for the kingdom, right? We all know who those people are. I'm not going to name names, but there are people like that that exist. There are false teachers that exist like that that are out for self-gain rather than for the gain of the kingdom, okay? The, the, how do you think the message is received by those people, by people who don't know Jesus? We know how that is because we hear about it in our workplaces and in school and, and the people that we minister to is, oh, you're just out for, you're arrogant. You're, you're just trying to get uh, more money. Your pastors are just trying to get more money. We hear that message. The message is received better when it is clear that the messenger is not out to see what he can gain for himself in the process. When it is clear that the messenger is only out for the glory of God, the message is better understood to be from God. It is confirming that this, these two people that are sent, it is confirming that the message is from God if it is clear that they are not out for themselves. They are out for the glory of God. And the, and the words that they were sent to proclaim, we see in verse 9, we see Jesus says, Heal the sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. It's the same thing I said earlier. It's the, the king has come, he has arrived, and he's coming to your town. You better get ready. The king has arrived. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Okay, well, in verses 7 through 16, we start to see kind of the response that you might get from a message like this. So let me move forward to our second point here, or our second piece of this uh, this quick sermon here is the response to the kingdom. The response to the kingdom. And ultimately, we see that the, the result of the responses that are given to the kingdom are either peace or judgment. 
there's only two responses. And it's a, I'm going to receive that message or I'm going to reject it. And so by, by result and conclusion, you either receive peace or judgment. Let me read verses 7 through 16 here. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And then Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And he goes on to say, verses 13 through 16, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So if the message is received, if people are willing to receive the message, if that town is ready to receive it, you are to stay there and minister to them. I said this earlier. I believe that that's where discipleship begins, is you have that one home, and that home is then going to take that message on and spread it further into the town, spread that good news further into the town that the king is coming. And then in verses 10 through 11, we see this. It says, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, I will pray for you, and then proceed to leave the city quietly. Is that, is that what it says? No. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for people who reject the message, but notice what Jesus says about what they are supposed to do when a city rejects the message. He says, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, into its streets, the most public place to be, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this. Again, this is part of what they are supposed to tell this town. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. You have rejected it, but guess what? It's still coming, and the king's still coming to your town you're just not going to be prepared for him. It's a public declaration. That is the most loving thing we can do to someone who rejects the message is to tell them that they are judged. They're going to live in hell for eternity. Does that not make you upset? That should concern us. That should grip us. That should fill us with compassion for that person. Because they're, the, the truth is they're not going to be with God for eternity. This language, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. This was kind of the mindset. This would have been received by Jews. This, this wording would have been received by Jews. 
Jews, Jewish culture, what they would do if they, if they were in a Gentile town and they were walking from that Gentile town to the, their hometown, their Jewish hometown, you know what they would do? They would take the sandals off their feet. They would wipe the dust that was on their feet because that was the dust from that Gentile town. And then they would walk in clean into that Jewish town. That is the idea that Jesus is getting at here. We wipe our feet off in protest against you because you have rejected the message. It sounds like an unloving thing to do, but that is the most loving thing to do because it gets people's attention. Now, guess what? That's where the wolves start coming in. Who's going to want to hear that they're like Gentiles? Who's going to want to hear that they're rejected because, because they rejected the message? Who's going to want to hear that? That's where the wolves start coming. That's why Jesus died. He died because they, they hated him because of what he was saying about their condition of their soul. How do you think we're going to be treated when we use that language? And he goes even further than that, and he says, your judgment is going to be worse than that of Sodom. Can you, can you just picture that for a second? You're, the judgment that you're going to receive is going to be worse than that of Sodom. Why would he say that? Well, it's because they had been exposed to the king. The king had come. The king was going to come. And all the good works that he was doing, it was right there in their midst. They could see it. Sodom didn't have that, but they were still living in grave sin. Genesis, um, let's see, Genesis 18 and 19 tells us that. In fact, in Genesis 18, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 through 21, the Bible says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. It's amazing that God would say that their sin is grave. Their, their sin is very grave. And if you aren't familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I recommend reading chapter 18 and 19 in Genesis. Um, that just kind of gives you a, a picture of this. And so the Jews would have been aware of this, this horrible nature that these, that these uh, uh, Sodomites lived in. And, uh, and just the, 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 the sexual impurity and the homosexuality that was rampant in that culture of that time. There was even a term that was, count, that was coined called sodomy because it's based on what happened in Sodom. And so Jesus is saying, the judgment that you're going to face, if you reject me today, now, if you reject me now, the judgment is going to be worse for you than it was for Sodom. Then he goes on to say in verses 13 through 15, it's going to be more bearable for, for, uh, for Tyre and Sidon than the judgment that you're going to receive. Well, what's Tyre and Sidon? I think there's, um, there's a passage in Ezekiel uh, chapter 28 specifically talking about Tyre. Um, and the king there is actually, uh, the way that God is talking to the king, the way that, I, uh, that Ezekiel uh, speaks to the king, um, that way that God speaks to the king through Ezekiel, the king of Tyre, it's, it's talking as if he were Satan. So your judgment, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, will be worse than that of the king who was equated to Satan. There's some big imagery here that the Jews are receiving when you say, so So, can you imagine telling a Jew that? I mean, you know what it's like to tell someone that they're going to die or that they're going to stay in hell forever. Nobody wants to hear that. But that's the truth. And Jesus encourages um, the messengers there in verse 16. He says, the one who hears you hears me. Again, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me 
rejects him who sent me. It's not us they are rejecting. They are rejecting Jesus. And by rejecting Jesus, they are rejecting God. And if they reject God, he will reject them. That is the truth. So I didn't what I meant to when I said earlier that I was I was kind of joking around about the, the, the text saying that, you know, we should pray for that. I'm going to pray for you and then I'm going to leave. We should still pray for them. There's still an opportunity because they're still alive. God's patience is alive and well because we're still alive. So we should be praying for those people. And we should not wish judgment upon anyone. We just talked about that and the significance of that. But what, it, what Jesus is getting at here in verse 16, I think, is a little bit, is, is uh, including this, is that we should, we who are the messengers who are sent, should not get frustrated or concerned about our own abilities to share the gospel if we're met with rejection. That should not be something that stops us. Okay? If we are sharing the truth and proclaiming what is biblical, we are doing what is right. Think about this. Even, even Jesus, even God himself, was, was met with rejection. Wasn't he? There were people he was preaching to and teaching, and they still had hearts hard enough to reject him right then and there, the king. Jesus was met with rejection, and his message was always perfect. There will always be hard hearts. So then we go on to uh, chapter, chapter 10, verses 17 through 20, and we see the return of the missionaries. They've, already, they've gone out, they've done what uh, Jesus called them to do, and we, receive, we see this return of the missionaries, and we see the joy that they come back with. They're so excited. Let me read that for you. Verses 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like, lot, like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. These missionaries, when they came back, they were rightfully excited of the signs and the miracles that they could perform. These were important because, again, in addition to the two, two, going two by two and the witnesses that they were, these signs were important because they were confirming the message that they brought was from God. That's what these signs were intended to do. The message that they brought was from God, not from themselves. And so these signs were confirming. And today we have the Bible that should be used to confirm the message that is being brought in the name of Jesus that message that is brought, when we confirm it and compare it against what is written in the Word, we can know that it's actually from God. That message is actually from Him. Now, I'm not saying that signs and miracles don't happen today. I think God can certainly use them as He wills, as according to His will. But we have the Bible today to see that. Back then, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have that con- uh, confirmation. But notice what Jesus says that they should be excited about. They were right to be excited about those signs and miracles, but what was the thing that he was focusing on for them? The thing that they should be excited about? It's the fact that your names are written in heaven. You are one of my children. That 
is what they were supposed to be focusing on, is that you're with me. And then we see the joy of Jesus, the joy of the Lord, verses 21 through 24. In that same hour, he rejoiced, he being Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone who, to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. This is a, such an amazing picture that we have opportunity to witness. That we're, I'm so thankful that Luke recorded this and that God chose to record this through Luke in this way. is for us to see Jesus communicating with the Father, his joy for what is happening. Because people are coming to know him and these disciples are also being excited about the work that he has called them to do. We see this wonderful joy and the the, the relationship that is between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit there in verses 21 and 22. Now, I want to focus a little bit on, first on this, uh, the last piece here, verses 23 through 24. He turns to the disciples and said, you are blessed for seeing this. It's, it's an opportunity that kings and, and, uh, and prophets didn't get to see before. Charlie read earlier from Hebrews chapter 1, where there were prophets who prophesied about the coming king. But they didn't get to see Jesus. They didn't get to see the king. They were talking about who the king, the king that was coming, but they didn't get to see him. What Jesus is getting at here is that you get to see me in action, and you get to see how the Holy Spirit works through you to do my will. I think that is so cool that they that it was a, a neat opportunity for them to see that. Some, though, will read this passage, especially this part where Jesus is communing with the Father, and get stuck on verse 22. Some will read this verse and quickly understand that this points to the biblical doctrine of predestination. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, so should this, should this doctrine, should this affect our evangelism? We see how Jesus just laid out how the, uh, many, the 72 were to evangelize. But should this affect the way we, we evangelize? I say no. And I say, in fact, this piece here should encourage us to continue to evangelize because it confirms that there are people still here that don't know Jesus who will know Jesus. That's the only reason why we're still here, folks. We're still here because we are here to do the work. The kingdom has not fully come yet. We are a part of that kingdom, but it has, it's still growing. There is still work to be done, and he uses us to do that. He uses us to bring people to know him. The fact that we're still here and that the Lord has not returned is evidence that there are still people out there who will come to know the Lord. Some will also read this and start to claim that this is unfair that there's something unjust going on here. I think we should read this and be amazed that God would reveal himself to anyone at all. He's 
not obligated to reveal himself to you. He's God. So why should we feel that this is unfair? Let me tell you what's unfair. Let me tell you what's so unjust. Jesus Christ dying on that cross. That is what's unjust. And what's unjust is that for the sake of eternity, Jesus is going to be with his hands and scars on his hands from being crucified forever. He will have bore the sin and shame that we deserve forever so that we could be there in perfection. That is unfair. That Jesus would have anybody come into his kingdom. So praise God that you know. And praise God that you're here today to hear this. But if you don't know the gospel and you don't know Jesus, it's a little risky for you being here as well. Right? Because now you've heard and now you know what the truth is. I don't want that judgment to come upon you. That's why I'm here today to tell you this. So we evangelize. Getting back to the point of this message here, we evangelize because we're called to do it, right? We talked about that uh, earlier. We're also, we also evangelize because we have compassion over those who do not know Jesus. We talked about the state of those who do not know Jesus and what's coming. Knowing the future eternal state of unbelievers should drive us to evangelize. And even though God knows who's in his kingdom, we do not. We don't. So we're out to just go to everybody as best we can. He uses us to prepare the world for his coming. So our message today as believers, our message today, our commission is the same message that those 72 had. You know what it is? The king has come and he's coming again. He's coming, right? The king has arrived and he is coming soon. That is the gospel. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity that you give us this morning to study your word and to to be um, to just be made aware of the good news that you have come to save us from sin. But, but in order for the news to be good, in order for us to see the goodness in that news that you are coming and that the king has come and that he's coming again, is to know the bad news. And the bad news is that those who reject Jesus will be rejected by him when he returns. They will not be prepared. Father, I pray that each one this morning would hear this message and that you would work in their lives to where they would see the importance of knowing who you are before you return. Of having you be in their life before you return. Help us to be prepared for when you come. And we thank you for this opportunity you give us, this warning that you've given us through your word and through your missionaries that you sent out back here that's recorded in Luke. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.